Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Let's turn to the book of Judges. Continuing this morning through our verse-by-verse, line-by-line, chapter-by-chapter, book study of Judges. By the way, as you're turning there, uh, how many people got to try out the new towel dispensers today? Raise your hand. Hey, and your hands are dry. Amen. Did you like, is that okay? You like that? Amen. That's good, isn't it? We won't waste half a, half a roll now when we go in there, hopefully. Unless the kids get in there, right? That's what some <laughs> Holton, I think, was alluding to that. As you turn to the passage in, in Judges chapter 1, sort of give us a recap of what we talked about last week. You remember the uh, three-point outline in uh, Judges chapter 1, which actually carries us all the way through to chapter 2 and uh, concludes in verse 5. There was a a three-point outline that I had given you. We talked about the success last week. And we talked about how the Israelites had early success until they actually got into the land. Today we're going to focus on how they settled. We'll look at, instead of the conquest, they begin to compromise. And so what does that mean to us as followers of Christ today? We'll conclude, uh, probably not this week, but next week, Lord willing, and look at how they eventually surrendered. And that's oftentimes what happens, folks, when we settle with sin, when we compromise in our life to things that we know is against God's Word. That's exactly what the Israelites did. They had God's promises. God had told them. He had instructed them. And yet they did not listen and obey the voice of God. All across this church this morning, and those listening via the radio, there are professing followers of Christ. There are professing children of God. And maybe they started off with success in their Christian walk. Maybe you started off with success, but now you find yourself in a season of settling in sin. You've compromised the truth of God's Word. And as I said, Lord willing, next week we'll look into what happens when we eventually surrender. And as they uh, eventually were defeated in a sense, it can happen to us in our Christian walk if we're not obedient to what God has told us. Compromise. You know, you think about compromise. It, there, there's a story in regards to what compromise can do. Uh, a New York family had bought a ranch out west, and their intention was to go out west and raise cattle. Well, this New York family uh, got out there and, and established this ranch, and so eventually some friends from, from New York City decided to venture out and, and visit. And when they got there, they asked, they said, well, does, does the ranch have a name? Because, you know, they, they understood those western cowboys. They always like to name their ranch. Know, does your ranch have a name? 
Well, said the would-be cattleman, I wanted to name the ranch the Bar J. B-A-R and use the letter J. Bar J, that's the name I wanted to use. But my wife, she wanted to use the name Susie Q. Well, my son didn't like that too much, so he said, uh, Dad, I want to name the place, I like the name Flying W. And my daughter, she wanted to name the ranch the Lazy Y. So, I decided we're going to call this ranch the Bar J Susie Q Flying W Lazy Y. The friends looked a little puzzled and they they looked around the ranch and asked the question, well, where's all your cattle? The man said, well, none survived after the branding. (laughs) I imagine not. (laughs) And see, sometimes that's, that's the way compromise is. May seem like a good idea, right? Keep the peace. But you can rest assured when it comes to the truth of God's Word, if we compromise, the end result is always death. You're going to find in Judges, God's people oftentimes compromising. And God coming to the rescue once again. Take a look in in today's passage, and and again, you'll recall last week in in regards to the the success, uh, we we talked about how Joshua had passed, and by the way, don't forget, as you read through Judges, there's going to be flashbacks. You know, one minute Joshua's dead, and the next minute in the text he's alive. What's going on? It's like you're watching the movie, and it has the the flashback scene. That's what's happening here. But but we start off, and, and Joshua was dead, and and it comes to uh, what are we going to do? Who's going to who's going to take the lead? And, and they go and ask the Lord. And remember, we talked about that it was important. To they they did right. They asked the Lord, who shall be the first to go up against the Canaanites? Now that we're in this land, who's going to fight against them? Who's going to lead the charge? Because they did what was right, and they asked uh, the Lord's leading. The Lord answered and said. Judah shall go up. And he said, I have delivered the land into his hand. Now, I don't know if Judah compromised in asking uh, Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, to help in this battle. If these two tribes, uh, if that somehow was was a lack of, of faith or trust on his part, some have said that maybe that was a good thing, that he was seeking to, to bring unity um, uh, in this charge. We talked about what happened, though, when these two teamed up. And i got to believe it was, it was uh, the beginning of a, of a downward spiral. Remember, we talked about um, initially in Genesis when you talk of the sons and you look at uh, Simeon, and the situation where he took revenge because of the rape of his sister Dinah and how violent he and Levi were in slaying the people after tricking them in Shechem to, for the males to, to be circumcised and then waited to the third day when they were in the most pain and they came in there and, and slayed them all with, with the sword. 
So this is this tribe, you know, they're, they're offspring of, of a very brutal man. And I think we see evidence of that even here in the passage because you see when they uh, eventually attack, uh, you notice that Simeon, the, it, notice verse 4, that Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Parasites into uh, their, their hand and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they, fa- they found Adoni Bezek in Bezek and fought against him and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adoni Bezek fled and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And I think there again, there you see a glimpse of some of that brutality. Yet uh, it says, and Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off uh, used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Interesting, why did they not just kill him? Remember, this is part of, and part of this downward spiral even began in Joshua's day. They were supposed to annihilate people, and they didn't. They left them alive. You know, we see this, again, as as partial uh, obedience is full disobedience. I think you got some of that going on here. So, uh, you you find at this time that the people of God in the land, it belongs to them. God has already given them victory. So why do they live in defeat? You remember the title, speaking of defeat, that is the continuing, this is part two of the agony of defeat. And poor Adoni Bezek, I guess he got what was coming. Well, let's pick up our reading today in verses 8 and following. Look with me, if you would, in God's Word of Judges chapter 1, verse 8. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelled in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjarth Abar, and they killed Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kirjarth Sefer. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjarth Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksah as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksah, as wife. Now it happened when she came to him and she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now the children of the Kenite, uh, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelled among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. 
Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland, because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please, show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of, of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwell in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalo. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Echo or inhabitants of Sidon or Ahalab, uh, Akzib, Helba, Afik, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwell among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Harris in Ajalon and in Shalvim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the accent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I led you up from Egypt. And brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side." and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bacham, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. A lot of text to cover, a lot of ground. Again, we won't get through all of this today. But I want to focus on some interesting things, and I want to explain a lot lot of names mentioned there. You know, it's real easy to read your Bible and just pass right over those. In fact, you know what I used to do? 
Well, I would read a passage like that. A lot of times I would change. I would say, okay, and they went to the town of LaGrange and they uh, stopped over in Pikeville. And, they, and I would substitute names of areas around here to kind of, you know, help me get a visual. Nah, that was a cheap way of doing Bible study. Dig in and find out what these things mean because there's some great meaning in some of these names. They're in the scriptures for a reason. We're going to take a look at some of these things today. Check this out. So, so we notice here are the people uh, of God are, are in the land. Why are they not experiencing the victory? They're beginning to settle. Let's look at it. Notice what happens in verse 8. The children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with their sword and they set it on fire. So Jerusalem falls, right? Well, yes and no. It was occupied for a time. By the way, who did they take there? We just learned in the previous passages. Adoni Bezek. He was taken there. That's where he dies. So even though they torched the place, ransacked the place, they left and allowed the inhabitants to come back in. In fact, we get a little more insight in who's settling there. Notice over in um, verse 21. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Interesting little passage right there. That's part of the passage that we circle to understand that, uh, to get our time frame also. Okay, we know this, that this takes place somewhere prior to David. Because we know, even though they're settling there for a little while, eventually, some 400 years later, 2 Samuel 5, 6-10, through 10, tells us that David will reconquer the city. But they should have had it from day one. Compromise. Notice what happens here. Uh, they, they attack the city, they burn it. Afterward, verse 9, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelled in the mountains, in the south, and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kerjath Arba. Now, what do we know about Hebron? Okay, they've just burnt, they've just burnt Jerusalem. Now they're going to go down and fight these Canaanites down in Hebron. Hebron was the ancient city of Abraham. By the way, if you wonder what that word Kerjoth means, it's the word basically city. So when you see that, it's city. City of what? City of what? By the way, Beth, what's Beth mean? House. Bethel, house of God. So when you see Beth, it's house of. When you see Kerjoth, it's city of. So this is city of Arba. Who's Arba? Well, let me tell you, this Hebron, this place, it's the city which discouraged the ten unfaithful spies from taking the promised land in Moses' day. 
because Anakim lived there. How do I know this? Turn with me to Numbers. Everybody turn to Numbers. Look at Numbers uh, 13. Numbers chapter 13. Let's pick up our reading in, in verse um, 22. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron. There's that city. Ahiman. Oh, didn't we hear these names mentioned in Judges chapter 1? Listen, here they are. Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the valley of Eshkol because the clusters which the men of Israel cut down there, and they returned uh, from spying out the land after 40 days. You remember that story? Think about it. Caleb and Joshua, they went into the land with the other ten spies. They all spied out. Ten of them come back. Uh Uh-uh. We ain't going there. Them people's big. Them's giants. They're going to squish us like bugs. Uh Uh-uh. And two of them are saying, "Uh uh-huh, we can take it. We can take it because God has promised us. God has told us. They had faith. They displayed faith. They displayed trust. So isn't it interesting? Here we find ourselves. Joshua's died. Now the conquests are moving forward. They're, they're taking the land. They're trying to take the land. And now the, the, they're pushing the Canaanites. They're down in Hebron for the battle. They're in the city of Arba. Who's this Arba? Arba was the greatest man of the Anakim. He's the father of Anak. Not unusual for a city to be named after somebody, right? Now think about this. This is the land of the giants. Those three guys that are named, they were great warriors. But the greatest of all of them was Arba. The city's named after him. Can you imagine what kind of warrior, representative this guy must have been? And these are the descendants, these giants. Which, by the way, because again, they're being disobedient to God, these people will eventually flee. And where do they settle? Amongst who? I give you a clue. Later on down the line, there's going to be a giant that faces David. Goliath, the Philistines. You see, there seems to be reoccurring problems through God's Word because of the disobedience of God's people. And yet we see in the text that it doesn't thwart God's plan even when we disobey. All things are working together for good. That doesn't excuse you and me from being obedient to God's Word. So, follow with me. Here they are in Hebron. They destroy this. They killed Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. These tall giants. Looks like they're doing okay. But again, partial obedience is full disobedience. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. What does Debir mean? It's sanctuary. 
The name of Debir was formerly Kerjoth Sefer. It's a city of the book. A city of the book. Probably where they kept a lot of the records and so forth and so on. Uh, uh, and, and so here they come into this city. They went against it. And notice, now we see Caleb. Here's Caleb. Caleb said, whoever attacks the city of the books and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa's wife. Now I can't help but read this and think of some of those cartoons, you know. Whoever who conquers this castle will get my, my daughter as bride. And you see her in nothing but her eyes, you know, and fluttering. And then she takes it off, you know. Oh, damn. I don't think that was the case here. In fact, I'd say it was quite the opposite. Isn't it interesting? Look at this, gang. This is good stuff. This is better than TV. Who needs this is good stuff. Check this out. Look, look what happens. Alright, Caleb says, Alright, whoever attacks Kajet's affair and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Aksa's wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, he steps forward. Notice this, Caleb's younger brother uh, uh, took it. And so, uh, here's what I know. I, I read that and I think, okay. I don't see anybody else stepping up. He offers it. I think Othniel was a lot like Caleb. Remember, they were sent to spy out the land. Ten come back. We can't do this. Two of them, yeah, we can. Othniel's like Caleb in this sense. And you know how the old saying goes. A lot of times uh, uh, dads, your daughters are going to be probably trying to find a guy a lot like dad. But how cool is this? Othniel steps forward. I'll take it. I'll do it. This shows, again, faith. Courage. Boldness. I think that's what kind of man Othniel was. We'll learn more about this man, though, as we continue studying judges. Because guess what? He is going to be the first judge that we will look at. That God uses. Alright, so, so here he is. He steps forward. He takes the land. So Caleb honors his word, gives his, uh, gives his daughter to be his wife. Now, verse 14. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? Now, some translation might say, What do you want? I don't think this was him saying, What do you want? No, it wasn't that at all. This is a father who loves his daughter. And it's basically translated, What would you like? What do you wish? What is your desire? There is a lot of great... Truth here that we can apply, spiritually speaking, lotus, um, that when she came to him, she urged him and asked, uh, Father, for field, she dismounted from her donkey. Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you've given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. Did her father ignore the request? Did he turn his ear and say, go on, leave me alone? No. It says, and Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Spurgeon had a great sermon on this. I, I want to share some of the, some of the uh, um, truths from, from this sermon of Spurgeon. He, um, he notes that this is, in essence, a, a pattern of prayer. 
He shows the request from a daughter, Aksah, to a father, Caleb. And it gives us a parable of such when it comes to prayer. Notice some of these things that uh, Spurgeon pointed out in one of his sermons. He says, she thought about what she wanted. She thought about what she wanted before she went to her father. Christian, do you think about what you want before you go to your father? Notice, before you pray, know what you need before God. She came to God with a a very definite request that had been considered beforehand. Think what you're going to ask before you begin to pray, and then pray like businessmen. This woman does not say to her father, Father, listen to me, and then utter some pretty little oration about nothing. But she knows what she's going to ask for and why she's going to ask it. She knew it was her father, she asked. Do you think about that when you pray? This is, this is daddy. This is my heavenly dada. This is Abba Father. This is, do you know who you're asking? She went humbly, yet eagerly. Her father asked her what she wanted. God will ask us the same thing, and we should know what we want. You should actually ask for it. Did you know it's a pleasure for God to hear you ask? You have not because you ask not. Now this isn't to ask for for selfish reasons. I don't know the intent of her heart. I don't know exactly why. I would imagine the land, if you've ever seen that land, I know it was a lot different in those days. But to have a water source was a need. It was a necessity. You can't live without water. We as Christians can't live without the living water. She says in her prayer, give me a blessing. She mingled gratitude with her petition. She mingled gratitude with her petition. You have given me land in the south. She recognized this is from the hand of God. Do you recognize what you have in your life is from the hand of God? Where's our gratitude? Everything we have, everything we possess, every skill we have, every ability we have, it's from the hand of God. She used past blessings as a reason to ask for more. She knew what He's done in the past. You know what God's done in the past for you. It's okay to remind God of His faithfulness. She realized that what she had been given before was of no use without continual springs of water. What is the use of the hearers if there be not the power of the Holy Spirit going with the Word to bless them? Give me springs of water, Spurgeon says. He concludes, he says, Her father gave her what she asked. Her father gave to her in large measure. Her father was not critical of the request in the slightest way. Church, our father wants to hear from us. He knows your needs. But he wants you to ask. We should come to Him humbly, with gratitude, knowing who we're talking to. It's okay to ask His favor on your life when it's in line with His will for your life.
Shouldn't we be asking that as a church? I want to reach this community for Christ. I, I want to see souls saved. I, I want to see this church grow spiritually and numerically. Shouldn't we ask, ask our Father for that? He adds to the church daily in Acts. I think He's still adding to the church daily. Let's ask. We ask? Let's ask. Notice verse 16. The story picks up again. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law. Oh, by the way, who's Moses' father-in-law? What's his name? Jethro. I used to watch that show, Beverly Hillbillies. You remember that? You remember that? Man, that's an old, that's an old character there, ain't it? No, not the same Jethro. But it is the Jethro of the, of the Scriptures. He went up from the city of Palms. Do you know what the city of Palms? Anybody know? Jericho. The, but it's already been destroyed, right? So they, the, the area is the city of Palms. They're scattered, but they're still there. And so the Scriptures say, the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. Notice, notice what happens here. Um, by the way, I'll back it up a second. Interesting little note here. You know who the Kenites are? Anybody have a little study note there in your Bible that might tell you who the Kenites, what they're, what, who, who they represent? They're the Smiths. <laughs> There's a lot of Kenites in the day. Anyway, all right. We went from there to Arad, a city uh, out in the Judean wilderness. All right. It was west of Masada in the Dead Sea. Uh, notice what, what happens here. Um, they went there, and, and then uh, you'll see that verse 17, and Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites and the inhabitants of Zephath and utterly destroyed it. Interesting, interesting stuff here. Look, look in 20, go over to Numbers 21. Go over to Numbers 21. By the way, see, it, it pays to circle these names and then study them out. Numbers 21. Numbers 21, look in verse 2. So Israel made a vow to the Lord. Okay, so they've made a vow. They made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Go back over to Judges. Notice in verse 17, And Judah went with his brother Simeon and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called what? Hormah. Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers. And, and by the way, Lucy, that's not the West Virginia mountaineers. I'm sorry. She says, I know, they wouldn't have drove them out. <laughs> but but they, they, they went in there, and they, they honored the vow of extermination against Arad. And they gave them the place, which by the way, you know what Hormah means? It's, it's slaughter and destruction. What it means. So, if any of you having that hormah chili, ooh, better stay away from it. <laughs> oh, that's hormel. I'm sorry. Same thing, though. Right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
So, notice in the text, here's what's happening. The story's unfolding. Verse 19, So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Wait a minute. I thought God had given them the land. Why, why couldn't they drive out? The Scripture says they couldn't drive them out because of the, the iron chariots. Guess what? They had already defeated men with iron chariots in Joshua's day. So it wasn't that they couldn't. They wouldn't. And again, it's because of their compromise. You know, fear will cause you to compromise. God's not giving you the spirit of fear. He's giving you a sound mind. He loves you. You know, a lot of times we live in defeat out of fear. I'm afraid to take a step of faith. I'm afraid to do this because it's going to put me out of my comfort zone. You know, that can be a form of compromise. If God is telling you something, if God has made promises through His Word, fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. He will strengthen you. He will uphold you with the right hand of His righteousness. You see, we've got to stop buying into the fear monster. I can't. Uh, It tears me up. I love my daughter Karis, but boy, oh boy, she gets in her head. I can't, I can't, I can't. Everything's I can't. You know, I can't, daddy, I can't. I'm like, honey, you can. It's a spoon. Pick it up. (laughs) Not that bad, but she has no problem with that. She gets that from her daddy. But you know, it's like we're like kids sometimes. I can't. If God says you can, you can. And here he said they could, but they would not. Verse 20 It says, they could not drive out those in the lowland, but they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. Think about how cool this is. They utterly destroyed that area, right? What was the area? This is where the giants were. Caleb sees this fulfilled. Moses has said, Caleb would be the only one to get that land. Bunch of you other Mamby Pamby Jack wagons, you're going to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. That's, that's the KJV, by the way, King Jeremy Version. But you know, they didn't have the faith. Now here you see a fulfillment. Caleb is taking the land, just like Moses said. It's given to him. And he drives out those, those giants. Kills them. Now we know some of them made their way, because they weren't those people end up filtering out. Even though the city's utterly destroyed, there's a lot that takes place there. We know later, the Philistines mingle. Well, Caleb got what he was promised because he was a man of faith. He was a man of trust. And we see evidence that even in the midst of compromise in this text, So, 
Notice what happens. Here's a but. Anytime you see a but in the Bible, you say of a professor in college, he says, you got to look out for those big butts in the Bible. Anyway, he'd circle them and say, you got to look out for those. Right here he says, but the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Verse 22, And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, house of God, and the Lord was with them. I tell you, it's great to know the Lord is with you. Amen? You're not fighting these battles alone. I don't know what battles you're facing in your life. Can I tell you, you're not facing them alone. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spy saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city and we will show you mercy. By the way, Luz, if you want to know more about it, look back in Jacob's day and and see what's going on there. So he showed them the entrance to the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword that they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city and called the name Luz, which is the name to this day. Well, the house of Joseph take the city of, of, of Bethel. But we begin a, a, a deeper downward, downward spiral here. You'll notice, and I want you to mark these in your Scripture. Because this is going to prepare us for next week's study. You'll have... A movement where we see in the beginning the success of God's people in the land. To in the passages we've looked at with them starting to settle amongst the people. Because you'll find this phrase throughout. They're not driving the people out as they should. They're not destroying them as they were told. But instead, notice what happens here in verse 27 and following. And I'm just going to hit some of these things. I'm not going to go into each passage. I'm just going to name these and you can circle them or underline them. But notice, verse 27. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean. Verse 29. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron nor the inhabitants of Nahalal. Verses 31 through 32, Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor of Halab, nor of Axib, nor of Helba, nor of Aphek, nor of Rehob. Verse 33, Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, nor the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but he dwelt... Compromise. But he dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became tributaries unto them. You know, we won't destroy them. Let's just put them to work for us instead. Yeah, that's a good idea. No, it's a bad idea. Isn't this exactly what happens? Saul's day. Remember, he's told... Slaughter them all. Everything. 
They hear the bleeding. Remember? What is that? Oh, well, I, I kept the prized possessions to, is to, for, for God. No, you didn't. You disobeyed. Compromise, folks, you justify it. You justify the sin in your life. I justify the sin in my life. We settle, we settle with the inhabitants of the land. Have we settled? Think about it. We're in the land of the Canaanites. We're in a worldly country. Have we compromised God's truth? Have we compromised God's Word and just settled in and allowed sin to settle in to our life? This downward spiral is pretty evident in this text from the beginning to the end. Yet we get glimpses throughout of men of faith. And we'll eventually see a strong woman of faith in judges. Are you going to be that man? Are you going to be that woman of faith that believes the promises of God, takes God at His Word, and, and, and refuses to live defeated? Don't compromise. Don't settle for sin when God has told you, thus saith the Lord. This is what a follower of Christ looks like. This is what the people of God do. These are the promises I've given to you as children of God. By God's grace, by God's strength, He will do it. Now we'll learn some things in this. Again, I've kind of alluded to it, and God talks about it in chapter 2, and we'll get there. About how even so, God still had reason and rhyme in all of this. But right now, I want you to focus on the importance of not settling. During World War I, an article from J.M. Boyce says, During World War I, one of my predecessors at 10th Presbyterian Church, Donald Gray Barnhouse, led the son of a prominent American family led the son of a prominent American family to the Lord. He was in the service, but he showed the reality of his conversion by immediately professing Christ before the soldiers of his military company. The war ended. The day came when he was to return to his pre-war life in the wealthy suburb of a large American city. He talked to Barnhouse about the life with his family and expressed fear that he might soon slip back into his old habits. He was afraid that love for parents, brothers, sisters, and friends might turn him from following after Jesus Christ. Barnhouse told him that if he was careful to make a public confession of his faith in Christ, he would not have to worry. He would not have to give improper friends up. They would give him up. As a result of this conversation, the young man agreed to tell the first ten people of his old set whom he encountered that he had become a Christian. 
The soldier went home almost immediately. In fact, while he was still on the platform of the suburban station at the end of his return trip, he met a girl whom he had known socially. She was delighted to see him and ask how he was doing. He told her, the greatest thing that could possibly happen to me has happened. You're engaged to be married? She exclaimed. No, he told her. It's even better than that. I've taken the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. The girl's expression froze. She mumbled a few polite words and went on her way. A short time later, the new Christian met a young man whom he had known before going into the service. It's good to see you back, he declared. We'll have some great parties now that you've returned. I've just become a Christian, the soldier said. He was thinking, that's two. Again, it was a case of frozen smile and a quick change of conversation. After this, the same circumstances were repeated with a young couple and with two more old friends. By this time, word had gotten around and soon some of his friends stopped seeing him. He had become peculiar. Religious. And who knows? They may have even called him crazy. What had he done? What had he done? Nothing but confess Christ. The same confession that had aligned him with Christ had separated him from those who did not want Jesus Christ as Savior and who, in fact, did not even want to hear about Him. Christian, I understand some of us have been settling too long in sin. We've been settling too long in the camp of this world. We've dwelt too long with the Canaanites. Will you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, not just with your lips, but with your life? You won't have to give up, friends. They'll give up you. You say, well, I don't want that, Pastor. Well, you know what? Then you don't want Christ. Think about this truth. Your love for family or your love for friends is stronger? By your profession, by your actions, that's what you're saying. Are you willing? To give up all to follow Christ. Let's pray.